You're a high priest forever. That sentence is used a number of times throughout this book, Hebrews. Looking at the priesthood in Israel in the first century, which is what this is about, but there's direct application to the church. Uh, we see a couple of things that are going on that the writer wants to be really clear with us on. The first is something about human nature is that we can underestimate God's holiness. That happened way back uh, in the Old Testament. And in Leviticus 10, there's a story about Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, doing my best to pronounce those. I don't know how they're pronounced. It's Hebrew. Where they offered strange fire to the Lord. They took it upon themselves to load up their censers with incense and, and fire. And they went in and they did it in a way that God had not prescribed. And fire came out from God and consumed them. That's not how you want to be on fire for the Lord. But what happened there in Leviticus 10, the explanation that God speaks through Moses, he says, by those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy. We can underestimate the holiness of God. So what is holiness? It's moral perfection as relates to infinity. All right. Understand that moral perfection as relates to infinity. And that's that's the broadest definition. But if you understand what happened there, why did Nadab and Abihu die? Because God is holy and they had violated his holiness. Because there has been a separation between God and man throughout the Old Testament. That's why the law was given, was to make provision for man's sins to be covered, but never eliminated. And in the middle of that provision that God was ordaining, these guys broke through. They underestimated his holiness. They went marching right into the Holy of Holies without having had their own sins atoned for, without having the covering that God prescribed for the high priest to do. Sons of the first high priest, Aaron. And so what happened there was an illustration to Israel, to us, that God is indeed holy. And in that, there, because he loves us, because he loved them, he made provision for them to come into his presence. One guy, once a year, the high priest. That's it. But, so, we can indeed see him in a way that discounts his holiness. I understand, as we looked at last week, that we now have full access to the throne of God, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy and help and grace in time of need. And that is absolutely true, and I'm not going to discount that. However, that is the result of the holy requirements of God being satisfied. They were partially satisfied in the high priesthood in the Old Testament. They are fully satisfied in the high priesthood of Christ. So as we look at this, we can underestimate the holiness of God. But the other thing about man is we overestimate man's goodness. Uh, I'll tell you, it's the greatest danger to the human soul is the wrath of God. And in overestimating man's good, goodness, you, you have to understand the basis of God's judgment. The basis of his judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. Things you think, things you say, things you do. How far into, pick a day, how far into any day do you get, do I get, before there is an impure thought, or I say something I shouldn't, or I do something that falls short of the glory of God? Those are the things that we do. We overestimate man's goodness. We underestimate the holiness of God. And there is a remedy. His name is Jesus, and he became a high priest forever. Not a temporary high priest, as we'll see this morning, as the priesthood switched from guy to guy, but a permanent high priest after the order of Melchizedek, this strange guy that kind of comes pops out of the shadows of the Old Testament. So 
But understanding that, we you can get why, quote, good people can end up in hell. Because it's not about being good. It's about being forgiven. It's not about uh, establishing my own righteousness. It's about provision that was made for me to wear his. And so as we go through this, I want to encourage you just to open your heart, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you in a way perhaps that he wants to address some things because he will, he's faithful. The high priest had to atone for his own sins before he could atone for the sins of Israel. That was the partial, the fulfillment. Jesus never had to do that because he had no sin. So the point in all of this is we need a mediator. We need a high priest. We need someone that mediates between God and man. They did in Israel then. God allowed for the high priest to come out of the tribe of Levi. And we do now. God allowed for the high priest to come out of actually the tribe of Judah. People would have been scratching their heads. The people in the first century would be saying, well, wait a minute. You're talking about Jesus as a high priest. The high priest comes from Levi. He's from the sons of Aaron, which is from the sons of Levi. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. We'll get to that. Understand, too, that this book, this letter, was written first to Jews who had trusted Jesus as their Savior. It's important, though we apply this, that we get the context. And I will continue to keep the context in front of you, not because I like repetition, but it's, it's really the only way that you can unpack this book to where it makes any sense at all. Uh, the context is, is the, the Jews then had been ostracized. They'd been cut off from their culture. They were cut off from the temple. They were cut off from the synagogue. They were cut off from their families. They were cut off from their livelihoods. They were in trouble. They were struggling. And they were beginning to wonder, was Judaism better? Why did I leave? And the writer here over and over and over again asserts, look at this in Judaism. Now look at Jesus. He's better. Look at this. Now look at Jesus. He's better. And we're seeing that theme coming through the pages of this book. Got to also understand that in their culture, they, the Levitical priesthood was central to Judaism. It was absolutely central. It was the outworking of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And so, these people would talk about the priesthood the same way that we talk about sports or politics. I mean, it was daily conversation around the dinner table kind of stuff. This wasn't something that they just waited till Saturday and on Shabbat went and took care of because Judaism was all-encompassing. And in, in, in the same way that Christianity is not a Sunday sport, it's a life And their life was immersed in this. And then they were pulled out of that because of the grace of God. And so here they are 30 years after the cross, struggling, wandering, wondering, what did I do? And the writer has great encouragement and great exhortation and warnings to them in the position, the very dangerous position that they were in. We can come to places in our walk with the Lord where we can end up in a dangerous position. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and there's great application in this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to begin in chapter 4, verse 14, as we looked at last week, and then we're going to move through and read the first four verses of chapter 5. There's two sections I want to cover this morning. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get through all of them, uh, the both sections. But the first is where the writer begins to outline the duties, and he kind of gives the shape of what the high priesthood looked like. Uh, and... Understand, remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original. And so as we read this, we're going to start with the beginning of the writer's thought on the high priesthood. We we stopped at the end of chapter 4 last week. We're going to back up three verses, and, and then we'll come into chapter 5. So in 4.14, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Remember last week we looked at that word sympathize. It means to suffer along with. Uh, He he can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all ways, ways or all points was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly 
to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So coming back and unpacking that, going actually we're going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, chapter 5 begins, again, it outlines the qualifications and functions of the high priest. Uh, and, and remember, for the Jews, for the first century Jews, this would be very comfortable ground. They would be aware of this. They would understand exactly what the writer is getting at. When he mentions a concept or when he brings something up, it would open up a whole vista in their own minds as to what was being said. We struggle a bit to understand this. That's why we keep the context in front of ourselves as we study this, because we're not Jewish. They would get perfectly where he's going with this, and I'll do my best to unpack it as we go. So we seek to understand this as much as we can. So in verse 1, he says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. First, he says that he's taken from among men. He's chosen from among, among men. The Jews, they would have been familiar with the tribe of Levi. I talked about it last week. Those of you that were not here, uh, the 12 sons of Israel, there were... Twelve tribes that came out of that, that came out of Egypt. And every tribe got some land when they went into the promised land, except for the tribe of Levi, because they were assigned the priestly functions. Now, everyday common Levites, the the tribe of Levi was responsible for moving the tabernacle around and for setting things up and tearing things down and doing all the work associated with the priesthood. However, the sons of Aaron, who were Levites, they were the ones who were directly charged with the priestly work itself. So it says, he says that the high priest is chosen from among men. It would be, the Jews would have understood he's chosen from among the sons of Aaron. Now, secondly, it says that he appointed or he's appointed or he's ordained, that's the King James, for men. In other words, it's not something he did himself. This is not, the ministry of the high priest was all about God. The priests were set apart. They were called to this office. So he's saying this isn't done by the will of man. In Acts chapter 6, we can look at sort of a New Testament comparison on this. Remember the apostles, they got the church going and, and there was an issue that came up. The Hellenists were critical of the church. They, they said that you guys aren't taking care of the widows. There was a ministry for food to the widows uh, there. And and the apostles, they said, look, this is not un, unimportant. It's, it's very, it's critically important that we do this, that we're taking care of the widows. We just don't have time. And so they appointed seven men uh, full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, it says in, in there in Acts 6, to take care of that work. Why? Because theirs was the ministry of the word and prayer. They needed to have time to fulfill the ministries they had because they had been set apart for a specific purpose and a, a specific ministry for, by God. So understand that these guys didn't, they didn't sign up. There wasn't a sign-up sheet for high priest. It was something that came through lineage, and it was something that came through Aaron, as far as that goes. And God was the one who ordained the whole thing. He set it up. It was prescribed. And the, the reason why this is important is the writer is going to get to why Jesus didn't sign up. It was prescribed. He's going to talk about Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of this priesthood, this Levitical priesthood uh, that Aaron had, uh, but Jesus being greater. Again, these guys in the first century, they're thinking, what do I do now? Where do I turn? I used, used to be when I sinned, I, I could take an animal and head for the temple and give it to the priest and, and atone for my sin. And I don't know how this works now. I, I don't know what to do. What about not having a high priest? 
And the writer is saying, you still have a high priest. As a matter of fact, you have a better high priest, and here's why. That's what this is about here in chapter 5. Interesting, uh, God knew that the people would sin in, in the Mosaic law. He understood that. That's why he made the Le- Le- Levitical priesthood. He did the priesthood for the people because he knew they would sin, and he was being gracious with them to allow them to have a way to come into his presence, to enjoy fellowship with him. Because sin breaks fellowship with God. Understand, this is his provision. This is his gracious provision for these people because Christ did not yet come. These are shadows. They're all shadows that point to an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The other thing about this, he says that he offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. It wasn't always a blood offering. Uh, Many of the ritual sacrifices were intended as simple gifts to God, expressing thanks. They were acts of worship. Remember, Part of the function of the Levitical priests was they led worship. They were the worship leaders in the Old Testament. And so what he's doing is he's saying, look, this whole priestly thing, uh, the priests offered gifts, they offered sacrifices for sins. For us, we simply confess and we're cleansed because the work is done. We have an advocate with the Father. That's part of his his high priestly role, the, the high priestly function of Jesus himself. So in verse 2, he says, we can, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Ideally, the high priest was more than a meat cutter. All right. I mean, you could look at this, and if all he was doing was just going through the motions, he was a butcher. We talked a couple of weeks ago about, uh, or last week, about the the neck being exposed, and he would slice across the carotid arteries. That animal would die, and then they would sacrifice it on the altar, and then the next guy would stand up in line, and, and he would do it again. But God's design in this for the priesthood was far more than a butcher, than a meat cutter. He wanted, and by design, he wanted the high priest to have compassion. It was very important that he be a man of compassion. In other words, he's saying, look, he was subjected himself to weakness. He was subjected to uh, to sins himself. And so therefore, he can't have this, I guess, what we would look at as a holier-than-thou attitude. Uh, very often I've seen in, in church circles over the years where uh, I see a hierarchical approach to church leadership that's sickening. It's all about going low, folks. It, it's not about attaining. And Jesus, when he, there in John chapter 13, wrapped himself with a towel and went around and washed his disciples' feet, he said, I'm doing this for a reason. That you understand that a disciple is not greater than the teacher. I've done this for you. Now I want you to go and do this for others. He wasn't talking about having a doctrine of foot washing. He was talking about having an understanding of servanthood. Talking about having an understanding of servant leadership in the body of Christ. There's no place for a hierarchy, and you won't find one here. Yeah, somebody has to make the tough calls, the hard decisions, all that. And I've been doing this for a while. I understand all that. But Christian leadership is about serving. It's about getting underneath people and lifting them up. It's about having compassion when people are going through tough stuff. It's about understanding, coming alongside when somebody's been trapped or they're in bondage to sin and seeing that God's will is worked out in their lives. It's not about some hierarchy where now we're going to have this top-down thing and make the church look like an American corporation. I've been passing a book around to some of our leadership. Uh, it talk, talks about the King Saul syndrome. Uh, King Saul being the one, the first king in Israel, who what he had done was taken the throne and abused it. And... and and it's not so much about Saul as it is his son David, who was the rightful heir to the throne. But David saw God's anointing 
or I mean, Jonathan, his son, saw God's anointing on, on David, on King David, and gave the kingdom away because, why? Because he went low. Because he saw what God was doing. That's a model for leadership. It's not, it's not this top-down thing. Anyway, the high priest was, he was supposed to be a compassionate man, never a, a top-down. And by Jesus' day, that's exactly what was going on. Uh, the guys that were doing the high priesthood were doing it simply for gain. They were ripping the people off. I'm not going to go into that again. I, we went through that when we were in the Gospel of John. But the point remains, uh, religion can corrupt people. That's why we're about a relationship here, and we're not going to be about anything less. The high priest was also prone to sinning. He offered up sacrifices for both himself and the people. One of the things that we have in Jesus as our high priest is he would never have to do that. Verse 4, he says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now here we see the introduction of Aaron. Uh, talk about an unlikely candidate for high priest. He's the guy, remember there in Exodus where Moses is up on the mountain and he's down in the camp and the people, you know, they all put their gold together and, and they fashion this golden calf and Moses is coming down the mountain and, and he said, what's that noise in the camp? Is there war? And they said, no, that's not war. That's a party. He got close through the tablets on the ground. Uh, the only guy in history that ever broke all 10 commandments at once. But um, he threw the tablets down and, and he goes and, and, and he does this whole deal. Aaron stands there and looks at his brother. I picture him looking at his brother straight in the eye and saying, you know what? The people threw this gold in the fire and this calf just jumped out. This would, this would be the high priest. This is the guy. But what's the point in that? God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses people that are unlikely candidates to, to accomplish things that they wouldn't be able to do in their own flesh. The point in that is that he gets the glory for the work that's done. So the high priest must be ordained by God. It's not a human ordination, it's not, but it's a divine ordination. Uh, in Ephesians, God ordains certain people in the church. We see that he calls some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's mandatory, this calling. I would never want to do what I do if I wasn't certain of God's call on my life. And I pray that's the same for you in whatever ministry you have. Uh, it has to be him. So Aaron is the first high priest. You can read about that in, in Exodus 28 where he's called to be high priest. But there's a story in Numbers chapter 16 about a guy by the name of Korah. Now Korah got 250 guys together. I'm just going to paraphrase it. He was actually Levi's. Korah was a Levite. He was of the priestly line, and, and he was actually Levi's great-grandson. So he was pretty close to the origin of all this. And he got 250 guys together, and they challenged Moses for his leadership, and they challenged Aaron in the priesthood. And they essentially wanted to come in and kind of tear things down the way that they were. They accused them of trying to take too much on, too much power. And essentially they were projecting their own thoughts onto them because that's what they wanted was power. And God took them down. I mean, the earth opened up and swallowed these guys. And it was because they were not called. Uh, in, in chapter 16, verse 28, Moses says, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. The point uh, in all of that with Korah's rebellion is in Numbers 1640, God says through Moses, no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord. In other words, this is the way I've set it up. This is the way it's going to be. And you're on very dangerous ground if you want to go against that. So now we're going to look at, well, yeah, we're going to look at chapter 5, and we're going to go through verses 5 through 10. Uh, and I'll read through, and again, we'll come back and we'll look at it. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. 
But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a high priest or a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's that guy. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 5, we see that he says, so also Christ didn't glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you're my son, today I've begotten you. That's, he's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, and remember last week I mentioned, I'll mention it again, there was only one high priest who was called great high priest, and that's Jesus. He is distinct in the office. The office pointed to him with all of the high priests in the Old Testament. Again, the, the type, a type means an impression. It means something that you see in the Old Testament that has a fulfillment in the new. And the priesthood itself was, was pointing, all of it pointed to Christ. The first thing we see here is that Jesus was called by God, not just as a man. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul uses the same verse, Psalm 2, verse 7, uh, and, when he, and he applies that to the resurrection of Christ. And so we see in that that we're talking about not just a man, but a man who has, as we saw in the last chapter, who has passed through the heavens. So we're talking about a greater high priesthood. We're talking about a high priesthood that extends far more than the priests of Levi. Though this was written to Jews, this high priest is a man and the son who was resurrected. And he ministers in heaven for you and for me. He doesn't minister from the temple. That was then. That was the type. The fulfillment is Jesus ministers from heaven for us. When we look at the superiority of Jesus as a high priest, we see, number one, that he's a high priest forever. There's no end. Number two, there's significance in his is coming from the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to look at Melchizedek in depth in chapter 7. So I'm going to kind of back off on talking about him too much. But remember, this guy, he he's a mysterious figure in the Bible. And when he comes out, he comes out way back in Genesis. He comes out again in the Psalms. And then the writer in Hebrews here, really, he just hammers it home as to what this guy, who he was and what he was about. And we see, we'll see in it, that Melchizedek himself is what we call a theophany or a Christophany, that he is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ all the way back. And he shows up. Jesus actually showed up before he took on a body, before he took on humanity. He took on, uh, he came and he appeared to men at different places in different times for different purposes. And we'll see the purpose that he appeared to Abraham as Melchizedek back then when we get there. And I'm saying too much. I'm going to back up with that. And save that. Uh, anyway, verse 7, he, sa- he says, Who in the days of his flesh, that means his life on earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, godly fear here, uh, in other translations, that, that word is tra- translated reverence. And essentially what it means in context is reverent submission that Jesus was reverently submitted to the Father in these things. And that, uh, you know, when it's talking about this, uh, this is, to me, this is a solemn thing. Uh, he's talking about the suffering that Christ did. And the, the reference is pretty clear that this is the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, went and and... and uh, was in the garden praying through the night before the soldiers and the guys all showed up. Uh, and as I was studying this, I, I just, I sort of had to bow my heart before the Lord because all we can get out of this is a glimpse 
of what Jesus went through as he began to take the cup of suffering for you and I, as he began to wear our sins as he ultimately would on the cross. Um, I remember years ago when I was in Bible college in my 20s, uh, that was a while back, um, I was in Bible college and there was a joke going around in Bible college that there was biblical proof that women would uh, not get to heaven ahead of men because in Revelation 8, 1, it says there was silence in heaven for a period of about a half an hour. <laughs> and I thought that was funny and it is humorous in that way. But then I read chapter 8 of the book of Revelation and began to realize that what is happening there is the wrath of God is being poured out on humanity and people are dying. And, 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 and like I said, I, you know, lighthearted humor is fine, but I began to realize that's a solemn thing. And the reason why there's silence in heaven is because God in all of his omniscience and in all of his majesty must judge sin. And in doing so, it's not his will that any would perish. That's what the Bible says. But he wants everyone to come to repentance, to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and then to live for him. And as he's getting ready to pour out his wrath there in Revelation chapter 8, there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. And so I began to, I, I, I moved away from, from that whole thing and began to realize, you know, um, there's a place for solemnity in the body of Christ. When we look at Jesus crying out to the Father, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, the medical condition is called hematidrosis. And, and it's a literal medical condition where the stress is so great that capillaries burst below the skin and blood comes out. It's, it's heavy, folks. I mean, it's, it's something that as we look at this, I don't want to take it too lightly. I want to understand when the writer is talking about Jesus as our high priest, he's talking about him suffering. Why? Let's get to that. And what it does is it begs the question, how can Jesus identify with us? How can he have compassion on us? And the answer is because he suffered. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was a man of sorrows, and he was well acquainted with grief. While on earth, Jesus, having a human body, experienced human weaknesses. Uh, weaknesses of the flesh. I mean, he experienced hunger. We know that. He was thirsty. He was weary. I would imagine he experienced loneliness. He went through many temptations. No one was tempted more than him. He was Satan's number one target. You gotta understand. I talked about it last week. Sin brings a callous, callous, uh, on, on the human heart and he had no callous. And so the impact of those temptations that he endured would have been 100% undiluted. And he had, he endured temptation on a level that we just will never have to endure. He was persecuted. He knew human weakness. He understood what it was to be a man and to be subject to the things that are common to man. Even though, as we read last week, he didn't sin. He never sinned. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John depict continual confrontations with the men who wanted to kill him. Think about the stress. I understand what stress is. You do too. We go through stressful things. And yet think about stress on an eternal level. Think about stress on a level that Jesus would have endured in his humanity. The point the writer is making here is he understands. He understands what a crisis is. He understands what stress is. He understands what it is to, with all of his being, pour himself out to the Father and have things go the way the Father had willed them rather than what he would will. He says right there in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, as he weeps before the Father. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus shed tears. He was fully a man, fully God, but fully man. 
subject to the things that men feel. And I know we're talking about feelings, but understand, he felt things. Uh, three occasions we see in the New Testament where Jesus weeps. First is at the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus gets up to the tomb and it says that Jesus wept. And the word for weeping there is not just tears running down his face. It was racking sobs. It was he sobbed. And I believe it was for more than his friend Lazarus. I believe it was for sin in general and for death, which is the result of sin. And, and, and I believe he was weeping for humanity in that. It's just an opinion, but I, there's a broader understanding of why Jesus wept before his friend's tomb. The second it is as he came over the brow of the Mount of Olives, a uh, beautiful scene. It, it, one of the most striking things that I, I saw whenever I went to Israel was I would come over the Mount of Olives and you come over and you look down, you can see the whole Temple Mount spread out below you. And you look down into the Temple Mount. You would think that the Temple would be up on a hill. It's not. It's actually, it's on a mountain, but Mount Moriah is the, the lowest mountain in the region. And God, by design, built that, had that built where it is so that people would look down. There would be a vantage point from anywhere in the city and you could look down on the Temple Mount. Well, as Jesus was coming in on that fateful Sunday where he was going to come into Jerusalem for the last time, because that following Friday he'd be on the cross, it says that he wept over the city. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you, you've slain the prophets. You've killed the ones I've sent to you. And you have missed, missed the day of your visitation. And because of this, not one stone in you will be left upon another. In other words, judgment is going to come. And, and he didn't want to judge, but he has to judge sin. They had missed Messiah. They were, he knew that all the hoopla that they'd have with the palm fronds in the road and all the crowds and all that, that would amount to nothing. Because by the end of the week, all the people that were cheering for him coming into the city would turn their back. They would run, even his own men. So he wept at the triumphal entry. The third place we see is at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the place I believe that the writer of Hebrews, it doesn't say, but I believe that the writer of Hebrews is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane as he talks about Jesus weeping here, crying out to the Father. My own opinion is that I believe that Jesus probably wept often. Not that he was, you know, always crying, but I believe that he was moved. And, and that, that he was moved just simply by humanity, that he was moved by compassion that he had for others. He was moved in just going through his ministry and seeing these people as sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering aimlessly looking for God in the wrong places, experiencing the religious leaders and the hucksterism that they were involved in in his day. A lot of hucksterism out there today, isn't there? Not a lot of compassion. Uh, oh, I could rabbit trail on that. I'm not going <sighs> to. Anyway, it says to save him from death, that he cried out to save him from death. That doesn't mean that he didn't want to die. He knew, like I told you before, when we were in the Gospel of John, he was in perfect control of the entire situation all the whole time. When they came to arrest him, he essentially held out his arms and said, go ahead. No, it wasn't that he didn't want to die. What, and it, literally, this translates to save him out from death. In other words, that he would be resurrected, that he would, was, he didn't, well, he wasn't crying, he wasn't weeping in the garden because he didn't want to die. He knew he had to die to atone for sin. But he also knew that what set, what was set before him was going to be a very, very, very difficult thing. In Psalm 16, verse 10, uh, we read this. This is, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, no, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so when he's talking about being saved from death, he's talking about being saved out from death. Death would not be able to hold him. It says that he was heard because of his reverent submission. He resurrected. He was heard. Talk about that more next week. Uh, there's a direct application uh, to us. So in the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus, he knew that he was going to be made sin. He knew that God's wrath was about to be vented on him. 
As a result, he was in agony. He sweat great drops of blood, as I mentioned. No man ever suffered in the extremes that Jesus did. And the point the writer's making as he goes through all of this is you have a better high priest. You have one that he's not just a Levite. He's, he's not just a son of Aaron. He's the son of God. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You know, we don't think about this much, but Jesus entered into the experience of obeying. I want you to understand something about obedience too. I came across this and it really is good. Obedience in God's economy is an outflow of love. Remember in Hebrews 12, well, we'll get to that. Uh, he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. He was obedient to death. It was an act of love. My obedience to Christ, my obedience as a Christian is not something because I have this list that I have to check off. If, you, if you're a checklist Christian, you might want to think about jettisoning that. It, it'll bind you up. It'll tie you in knots. I'm not saying that not sinning is not important. It is. But my obedience, our obedience is a response to the grace that we've been shown. It's a loving response. It's a loving act. When I obey, when I do something that God set before me to do, it's not because I have to or because he's got me by the nape of the neck. It's because I understand his love. I understand his grace being poured out on my life. I understand that I want to live a life that is consistent with the life that he has for me and cooperate with the working of his Holy Spirit rather than walk around being convicted about sin all the time. Yeah, we do have an advocate when we do sin, and we do, when we blow it. And yet Jesus was perfectly obedient, and it was an act of love. And it's a great model for us in our obedience. The other thing about this, when it says that Jesus learned obedience, he didn't learn obedience because he was disobedient. He wasn't operating from disobedience. As God, he needed to learn nothing. He had no need to learn anything. But when he took on humanity, he learned obedience. How did he learn? Again, through suffering. The point in this is because of this, he understands. He has compassion as our great high priest. Verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The word perfected again, it doesn't mean that he became perfect. He was perfect. We know that, that he was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. We looked at that. So what does it mean? What it means, what it's an indicator of is that all was completed once for all. The gospel was perfected in Christ, that it would never need to be repeated again. There wouldn't be the need to continue to offer sacrifices. There wouldn't be the need to continue to go and, and grab an animal and take it to the priest. And if somebody ran me off the road on my way out, I got to grab another animal and go back. There wouldn't be a need to continually have this perpetual deal going. Why? Because Jesus perfected the gospel. He perfected the good news when he went to the cross and he died once for all. It's not about him not being perfect before that. It's not about him being disobedient before that. Don't even go there. That, that would be un him. He wouldn't be God if he were capable of doing those things. The point is in that, that the Levitical high priest offered animals continually, and Jesus offered himself once for all. What's the result of that? Eternal salvation to any who would believe. We're going to look at that next week more, but uh, really it begs the question, do you believe it? Verse 10, he was, he was called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's this guy, again, this mysterious one who steps out from the shadows of the Old Testament. 
uh, and the writer has some really important things. He's going to go all the way with the priesthood. There will be mention of the priest, priesthood here in the book of Hebrews all the way chap- through chapter 10. And we're in chapter 5. I mean, this is a major theme. Why? Because in the first century, it was the hub of Judaism. The, the, the priesthood was the hub of their religion. And, and there is so much application to us, to the church, in this beautiful letter, that as we go through here, that we'll continue to pull things out. There are many, many parallels to the New Testament in this. Not in making the Old Testament, not in making the law apply, because the law is fulfilled in Christ. And the effect of the law comes into play with unbelievers, but it's terminated in us, in him. We'll get into all that too. The major point that I want to make with you guys here on this is that God never intended the priesthood to be fulfilled through an institution. In Israel, in Jerusalem, or in, in Judaism, the priesthood was an institution. And it was an institution that was fulfilled by many men over many, many years, centuries. It was, that was never the end of the priesthood. The priesthood, the end of the priesthood would be fulfilled in his son. And that's what the writer is saying here, that today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's talking about the humanity of Christ, but further, more than that, he's talking about the fulfillment of the, the priesthood of Levi being this Jesus guy that comes from the tribe of Judah, but He's the high priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. That's why he puts Melchizedek in there, because there's a break in the lineage. It has to be a break in the same way that Jesus is born of a a virgin, born of a woman, but born of a virgin to break the lineage of Adam. He's using this whole thing about Melchizedek to illustrate that there's a break in the lineage from the Levitical priesthood into this priesthood that's better the priesthood according to Melchizedek. And so the bottom line is that he's our heavenly priest. He is our priest forever. He's a high priest forever. He doesn't have an end to that ministry. It's an infinite, eternal ministry that he has for his people. In that, we have access 24-7. And I don't know about you, but I need 24-7 access. I appreciate that he's not a God who's far off. All of this is speaking to what we saw at the end of chapter 4 when he said, therefore we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. What he's done now, the reason why these are connected, we don't look at the chapter breaks, is he's saying, this is why that is so. Does that make sense? So he's been elaborating on this and going through this whole deal to tell us that this is why you can come to the throne of grace. This is why the way is open. Because Jesus is a better high priest. Full access, unbridled access to God. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us with an eternal love. He loves us with an infinite love. And he knows you by name. I laugh sometimes. I think, Lord, you know all about me. And still you love me. That's amazing. I'm going to close with a question. Is it possible, and hear me out on this, is it possible to pour out my heart to the Lord to know that he hears me, then to still have to take a cup I don't want to take? Think about it. Life doesn't always go the way that we picture it ought to go. There are things, there are times where the Lord, and and, and I want to make a clear distinction. We're talking about the cup of his suffering for sins of humanity. I'm not talking about that as though that's something that we have to do. Of course we know that's done. But there are times where we have to take a cup, whatever that is. There are things that come up in our lives, and maybe it's the doctor saying you're not going to get better. Maybe it's a financial issue that's going to lead to ruin. 
Maybe it's relationships that are broken and you don't see how it could possibly get unbroken. I don't know what you're going through. I I know what I go through. And there are times where the Lord in his sovereign will ordains that things come up in our lives, that it's part of what we go through, and he's not going to back it off. It's not because he's unloving. It's because he knows better than we what we need. He knows better than we. And I I don't want to say this lightly because sometimes we face really tough circumstances. But he's our great high priest. He's our faithful and compassionate high priest. And at times he allows us to go through things. We don't see the end of it, folks. I don't. I'm going through some things with my brothers. I don't understand it. Uh, just with their health and, and seeing them decline more and more. I've been praying my brother, one of my brothers would be able to go to Israel. He told me the other day that he was just so, that the Lord's keeping him from going. He's just not going to be well enough. And, and just things like that. That's just one thing on my plate. But you know what? I don't know what's on your plate, but I understand that this is a key factor in maturing as a Christian to know that there are tough things that come along. These Jews in the first century were going through very tough things. They they had financial ruin in front of them. They had ostracization from their family in front of them. They had being totally excommunicated from their community in front of them. And what the writer is doing is encouraging them, saying, look, you have a high priest who cares. He's compassionate. He understands. And you have an advocate for the before the Father with the things you're going through. You want to talk about the emotions, what I call the emotions of crisis? You know, that, that point where there's just a tightness inside. You don't know how this is going to come out. You don't know which way to turn. You don't understand how it adds up. The columns just are not adding up right. He understands. We're not alone. He went through what he went through as a man so that he could experience what men and women go through. I find that infinitely encouraging. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this just this brief look at the high priesthood of Christ and all that that means to us.